The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Casey Shutt. I am a member here and also an elder candidate. And hopefully that, will, that process will be complete fairly soon. Um, I'm also, we, we've been attending Morningstar, or I'm sorry, we've been attending Sacred City for two years. I work at a school called Morningstar Academy, a classical Christian school located in Bettendorf. Um, and every time I preach, people make comments. You may not know who I am because normally I wear glasses, but every time I preach, people say, Hey, you're preaching today, aren't you? You're wearing contacts. And if you must know, the reason I wear contacts, contacts on preaching days is that my ears can only handle so much weight on them. And with this mic and my glasses, it just gets a little too heavy. Um, so I've, I've got an announcement and then we'll jump into our, our text this morning. After immediately following church today, there's going to be a visitor forum uh, right after the gathering in the cottage next door. There'll be a light lunch provided. Um, and the, the purpose of it is if you're new to Sacred City, if you've been visiting for a few weeks and you want to understand more uh, of what we're doing here, this is for you. This visitor's forum is for you. So come join us afterwards. Again, it's after the service in the building that's just next door over here. And there'll be a light lunch provided. Okay, let's pray. And we'll begin. Father, we, we need you. If you don't show up, nothing happens. In fact, our hearts may even get more hard as a result of being here today if you don't show. And so we ask that your spirit would come down, do what only you can do, and that is recreate us from the inside out. And we ask that we would leave here in, 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 in not too long, that as we leave, we would actually be completely different than when we arrived your sanctification would have been propelled as a result of us being here today. So we need you. Help, help me communicate clearly. Um, and most importantly, with your spirit's power. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 2002, uh, Maurice Claret, a running back, a freshman running back for the Ohio State University, had a phenomenal season. He rushed for 1,237 yards in, in his freshman year, scored 18 touchdowns, and led the Buckeyes 
to a 2002 national championship. And he, I mean, he, I, I remember ESPN was obsessed with this guy because he was so unbelievable. And when he gave autographs, he would sign his name and then he'd write underneath the greatest. Right? So he knew it as well. Um, and the next year, for a variety of reasons, he was dismissed from Ohio State. He got into some trouble and was dismissed. And he thought, no problem. I'll just go right into the NFL. There was a problem, though. Um, the NFL had a, a league rule that said you had to be so many years removed from high school before you were eligible for the draft. And so uh, Claret sued the NFL over that, ended up losing. It kind of drug on for a while, ended up losing. Um, and then finally in 2005, so several years after he's even played football, his opportunity comes. He's old enough now. And he, he goes to the NFL Combine in Indianapolis, and all eyes are on Maurice. How's he going to do? And he gets there, and he's overweight, out of shape, slower. In fact, he gained the nickname Slow Mo as a result of that um, combine. He did horribly. And surprisingly, though, the Denver Broncos decided to take a chance on him. They drafted him. And they gave him a, a contract. Um, of, they, they, get, they offered him a guaranteed contract where he would get guaranteed money, whether he played or didn't play. But then they also kind of dangled in front of him this incentive-based contract that, that hinged on how well he performed on the field. His agent said, go with the guaranteed money. <laughs> Just go with the guaranteed. But Maurice Claret said, no, I'm going to go the incentive-based. So he took that contract. Um, within a month, he was cut from the team. They didn't see him being a fit. No other NFL teams picked him up. And he was, a million, he was more than a million dollars in debt over this lawsuit that he had done several years prior. So here was a player that had tasted the glory that every football player can only dream of. He experienced all the great things um, that a football player desires. He was well on his way to greatness um, as an NFL player and, and, and Hall of Fame greatness. And yet this course, that he, it appeared like he was so securely on, he got completely derailed from that course, right? As a result of his own folly, hubris, waywardness, things didn't pan out. This morning, Paul is going to provide us with a warning of what happens to those who veer from the course He's going to point out that it is possible for someone to hear the good news of the gospel and veer from it and get derailed from it. In our passage this morning, it's going to require us to consider several different contexts. Uh, Anytime you hear or read something, you've got to know the context. You know, if I go to Barnes and Noble and I pull a book off the shelf at random and I open to page 47 and read the middle paragraph on page 47, it's not going to make any sense, right? There's no, there's absolutely no context to that paragraph. So we've got to know the context. And in this passage this morning, there's, there's really three different contexts that we have to consider. There's the cultural context. Paul is writing to the ancient world. More than 2,000 years ago, he's he's writing to this congregation in Corinth. And what he says to them would have made a lot of sense to folks 2,000 years ago. But because of the cultural difference, it makes less sense to us. So we've got to understand that. There's also the biblical context. Paul, as you may have noticed, reaches way back into the history of Israel 
in order to make his point. And so for us to understand the point that he's making, we too have to go back in the history of Israel, which means we have to go back into our Old Testaments to understand a little bit of, of what was going on there. And then finally, there's an immediate context, right? What Paul is saying in this little section of, of Scripture is connected to what he's already said in previous chapters and what he's going to say, what he's going to say as we move on. So first, the, the cultural context. We live in a really weird time. Um, religion in our own day is very peripheral to our lives, right? Just in general, in our culture, um, we tend to think that there's this division between public lives and private lives. And religion may have a place in our private lives, but it doesn't have a, a place in our, in our public square. Well, in the ancient world, even though a lot of them were pagan, religion was front and center to life. All of their public life had, was infused with religion and spirituality. And that's just not the case today. A hundred years ago, sociologists were saying that as, um, as the U.S. and as the Europe became more modern, they would become less religious. And that, it was called the secularization thesis, that belief held for about 60 years. And then in the 1970s, sociologists said, you know what? People actually aren't growing less religious. They may not, Christianity may not be on the rise necessarily, but people are still very spiritual. So there was a lot of challenges to that in the 1970s, 1980s, and even on into the present. I was, uh, um, I studied at Durham University in England, and the UK I think is a little bit further along in this process. But to give you a little example of, of, of what we're talking about, this is in the UK, first day of class, the introduction to the study of religions, there were uh, Quite a few, about 30 in the class. And I was just in there as sort of a TA. So I was, I was uh, observer more than anything. The teacher, the professor asked, how many in here are Christians, right? England, Anglican, kind of think, you know, pretty Christian nation. Um, a handful raised their hands, five, seven, maybe. How many students in here are Buddhist? There was a sprinkling, one or two. How many are Muslim? A few, again. How many students in here are pagan? More than half the class raised their hand. So here was an example that in this introduction to the study of religions, this class was overwhelmingly pagan, right? Self-identified pagan. Which points to how spirituality and religion has morphed, but it still remains very private, right? I probably would not have learned that about any of those individuals unless the professor asked them point blank that they were pagan. We hold to these views, but they're very private. And that is not normal, okay? It, just in the span of human history, that's not, what humans, that's not the way humans have viewed spirituality and religion. Uh, it's not normal. It's kind of weird. And those cu cultures that infused religion into all of life, that was more normal and more true to how we've been created. Right, that we are worshipers. So the cultural context that Paul is writing to was deeply spiritual, deeply religious. The city of Corinth was not worshiping the right things, but they were right in that they were worshiping. Or at least they made that explicit. Which leads us, that they were right in their belief that worship is a central part of life. And that leads us to this immediate context that we're dealing with. 
Because worship was explicit in all spheres of life for the Christians in Corinth, they had some, the Christians in Corinth had some unique problems. If a, if a Corinthian Christian were to take a trip to the high V in Corinth, they would have been, that, that experience would have been filled with religious significance. Why? Because regularly, animals would have been sacrificed in the temple to other gods, and the meat from those animals would have then been sold in the marketplace. Okay, so the, the priest kind of doubled as a butcher and would sell this meat, because didn't, they didn't want it to go to waste, um, to the folks in Corinth. And the Corinthians asked a very important question. Can we eat the meat of an animal sacrificed to other gods? And Paul provides his answer to that question in chapter 8. He says, yeah, you can. You can do that. That's okay. But you must be careful. And he's really still in the middle of answering that question when he gets to our passage this morning. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, well, why does this matter at all to me, right? Okay, Corinthian, they had this very religious, worshipful culture, pagan culture. We don't. You know, my trip to the high is pretty, pretty neutral experience. Uh, it's not a whole lot of worship that I can see going on. Not so fast. Okay? Not so fast. Here's where the ancient culture saw something that I think we're a little bit blind to. And that is that we are worshipers. And all of life is worship because of us being worshipers. We just infuse it into things without even thinking about it. There's a theologian named David Wells, and he's compared um, our shopping malls to the cathedrals of medieval Europe. And he says this, If Gothic cathedrals symbolized feudal society with its sense of being, of hierarchy, and most importantly of all, of God's transcendence, malls symbolize for us the consumer culture in a secularized world. Malls are our cathedrals. Right, our places of worship. They're not just places to which we come to buy articles. Through careful control of lighting, temperature, visual displays, they create an alternative reality, a kind of earthly heaven in which the pleasures are endless and the gratification promises to be enduring. Here we find ourselves and construct our identities. The many products we purchase in these malls, places that are quite unlike life, build up our self-image and leave a trail of pleasurable emotional experience. They are the products that are passed out in these, our secular cathedrals, sacraments that both point to and also mediate the salvation for which the empty have come. Okay, so what Wells is saying, and a lot of others have said similar things, um, is that the shopping mall experience is not just an ordinary experience. By our very nature, we infuse that experience with religious significance. And you could do a similar analysis to a trip to the ballpark, um, attending a concert, even a trip to the grocery store, right? Or a trip to the gym. All of these things, if you analyze them uh, with sort of a worship lens, you can see some of, the, some of the things that are actually going on there. So what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth still, still applies to us. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Paul says, 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul, again, is going back to Israel's history. And, and in the history of Israel, the Exodus is the central event in their recollection. You know, if you think of being a U.S. citizen, you think of the Declaration of Independence or something along those lines. We all kind of think of that as being pretty important. An Israelite thinking about their national experience, they go straight back to the Exodus. It's huge for them. And Paul is drawing upon Israel's experience in order to shed light on what the Corinthians face more than 2,000 years ago. Now, bear in mind that the Corinthian church was mostly Gentile. So it's, it's interesting that Paul would kind of assume that they have this understanding of Israel's past. What it tells us is that Paul um, and the Corinthian church and the early church really drew heavily on the Old Testament and understanding the, their own Christian faith, right? The Old Testament and, of course, the letters that they were receiving from Paul and others, um, But in the book of Exodus, the people find themselves enslaved. In fact, the text goes a long ways to make this point. If you look in Exodus chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, um, the translators that translate those sections, they don't translate it this way, but literally what the the Hebrew word abad keeps popping up, and that is the word for slavery or slave. It's the root for slavery. And that word shows up countless times. I'm going to read those verses, but I'm going to insert the word abad every time it shows up as I read it. This is Exodus chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. This is kind of setting us up for what the big problem is in the book of Exodus. It says, therefore they, um, the Egyptian leaders, set slave masters over them to afflict them with heavy slavery. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were enslaved the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the egyptians were in dread of the people of israel so they ruthlessly made the people of israel slave as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard slavery in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of slaving in the field in all their slaving they ruthlessly made them slave as slaves you get the point right they're enslaved And that's not good, okay? And so as you probably remember, God raises up Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. And he does. And following the plagues, uh, the Egyptians finally, a little bit reluctant, definitely reluctantly, let uh, Israel go. Around 30,000, there's a lot of debate on this, but most would say 30,000 of Israel and even some other nations, people that were enslaved, leave as this mass exodus out of Egypt. And they follow a cloud, which Paul mentions in our passage. They're following a cloud, and the cloud leads them to the Red Sea. Now, meanwhile, the Egyptians have decided, you know, I think we want that labor back. Let's go get them. So they're in pursuit, and the the people of Israel find themselves pinned between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And there, Moses... um, Parts the Red Sea. God miraculously parts the Red Sea. The people are delivered through it. 
the Egyptian army pursues and the waters come down on them and they drown. And Israel is um, delivered and make it to the, to the Sinai Peninsula on the other side of the Red Sea, which is a, which is a wilderness. But God sustains them with uh, water from a rock and this manna. Um, which you may think, well, what, what is that? That's a very good question because even Israel didn't know what it is. Manna literally means, what is it? It was this stuff that just came down from heaven that, that fed the people. Um, it was the precursor to the whatchamacallit candy bar. That was kind of lame, I know, but I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. Um, this, exodus, this exodus experience, though, what I've just described that's so central in the memory of, of Israel... It's very much like the Christian experience. There's a lot of parallels. And I'm going to mention some of those. Israel was enslaved to a people. We are enslaved to sin. God provided deliverance from slavery through a man, Moses. And God provides deliverance from our slavery to sin through the God-man, the second Moses, Jesus. Once saved, they were baptized in the Red Sea, Paul says. And once we're saved, we're baptized. But that's only the beginning, right, for for both them and for us. Now that they were liberated, God gave them the law and asked that they live accordingly. And now that we're liberated or delivered from sin, we are now free to adhere to and obey the law. The law law doesn't lead to salvation. It follows it. But Israel was still not home. They were aliens and strangers in the wilderness, but on their way to the promised land. We too are not home. We're aliens in this world, pilgrims on our way to the promised land, the new creation. Until then, just as Israel was sustained by water from the rock and bread from heaven, what Paul says are both emblems of Jesus, we are sustained by the bread and wine of communion, emblems of Jesus and the very presence of Jesus. So do you see why Paul is making these connections? Because the two experiences are so similar. And yet, verse 5 tells us, of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 5 tells us, even though so much grace was given to them, Paul says in verse 5, most of them died, which is actually an understatement, because all adults but, but, uh, but two died, did not enter the promised land. And actually, the sense of it is even worse than being overthrown. Literally, the idea is that their bodies are just sort of scattered across the desert. Um, dead and, and scattered. Not, not even, you don't even get the sense of like an orderly, proper burial. They're just sort of left to rot in the desert. How could a group that witnessed such a great salvation, experience such a great salvation, end their lives so miserably... By dying in the desert. Verses 6 through 13 give us, give us the answer in 1 Corinthians. Get, Paul gives us three reasons. One, idolatry. They got entangled in it. Two, putting Christ to the test. And three, they're grumbling. Okay, so first, idolatry. The text says that they were idolaters. And you, you got to wonder, why is idolatry a constant threat to Israel? Because it is. Not just in Israel's history, but even in the New Testament, it's a big deal. We've seen it in, 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 the, in Corinth. So why was it so appealing? 
I'm going to give you some reasons why idolatry, especially the form that tempted uh, Israel, why it's so um, appealing. One is that an idol is very controllable. You feed them, they feed you. You scratch their back, they scratch your back. You do a little dance for them and they'll dance for you. They're so predictable. And it's, it's tempting for us to think in those same ways. To sort of, because that's how human relationships are, right? That's sort of how we operate. So it makes sense that a God made in our image would operate in the same way. And we're tempted to do the same thing towards God. To kind of project our understanding of who we think God is like or who we think God should be like onto God. And let me give you some examples of how this crops up. Have you ever um, felt as though God owed you kind of the thumbs up from heaven because of your church attendance? You know, I've been going to church every week after, since, since the day I was born. I've been raised in it. Now you owe me a life full of blessings and a life, a paved life for me. So that's an example of how we can kind of do the same thing. Project our understanding of God onto God. So idolatry is controllable. It's also relatively painless. At least what you see in the ancient world. I mean, there really weren't that many lofty moral demands that these gods had. Um, Doesn't it make sense that a god of your own making wouldn't really challenge you in any way? It all seems so fabricated, this idolatry. It seems very humanly constructed. And it is. And then finally, idolatry is appealing to Israel because um, it was always very sensual in that it involved, one, it involved the senses. Um, it always, there was always a lot of eating and drinking associated with idol worship. There's always a lot of smells that went on. When I was in college, uh, I spent a summer in Lhasa, Tibet. And, it, and there is this huge Potala Palace, it's this Enormous, magnificent temple, Buddhist temple. And we would wind our way through this labyrinth of, uh, you know, little rooms and all sorts of things. And it was a very sense-enlivening experience, right? There were strong smells. There was incense. There were colorful displays of gods. I mean, it was hard to take it all in, right? Um, And and that's what idol worship is like. But idol... um, Worship is also sensual in that it also a lot of times involves sexual immorality. And that's what Paul says Israel has gotten all caught up in in our passage this morning. Do you know what the most common idol was? Archaeologists, they're digging up these idols all the time in the ancient Near East. The most common one was an unclothed woman with emphasized parts. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was just by its nature very sexual. Let me, let me try to explain what the logic behind this. Once again, the belief was that the gods were like us, right? And so what we needed to do in order to get the fruits of the field to prop, you know, sprout, to get our cows to start having babies and our other livestock to start having babies, we needed to spur them to engage in, in, in sexual relationships with each other. Then they would rain down their 
their fertility on the earth and we would experience the fruits of that fertility and we would be able to eat and be able to have bigger livestock and all. And, and that, that was the logic, right? Now notice who it is though, that tempts them to this idol worship that clearly has um, a sexual side to it. It's the Moabites. And we've seen the Moabites before back when we were studying Abraham. If you remember Lot, one of Abraham's relatives, uh, is delivered from Sodom, right? Um, God brings judgment down on Sodom, and Lot is delivered. And shortly after that, his own daughters get him drunk and um, sleep with him, and they have children as a result of that relationship. And it says that the, 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 the son of the oldest daughter was the father of the Moabites, okay? So here they are. Conceived in sexual sin, and yet there's more than 400 years after that, they're still entangled in it. And that's what is so dangerous about idolatry. It gets a hold of us, right? And it, it doesn't just affect you, but it, it carries itself through generations. I mean, 400, more than 400 years later, they're still wrapped up in it. Um, so let's try to bring this to us a little bit. I mean, I know we, we obviously don't make idols of wood and gold in the way that they did, you know, that are just yay high and we bow down towards them. I don't, I haven't seen that happen, you know, explicitly like they did, but we do have what the Bible calls idols of the heart. And, you know, how, how do you know that you struggle with idols of the heart? Well, first of all, and Tim Keller has been a huge help for me in understanding this and so a lot of what I'm saying is drawing upon him. But an, I, an, an idol is, something, is, is a God that you have in your life that gets you up in the morning, right? Something that activates you, makes you do things, it motivates you. How do you know what your idols are? Well, Tim Keller gives a helpful diagnostic for that. He says, one, look at what you spend your money on. Look at your checkbook. Are there certain things that you repeatedly purchase. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe you love to eat out. Maybe it's, I I don't know what it is, but there could be an idol behind those patterns, those purchasing patterns that you have. Next question. What, what is it that gets you angry, right? There's some things that, yeah, sure. Of course you'll get irritated about, but other things that, that maybe are just as severe cause you to fly off the handle. There may be an idol behind that. And then finally, another diagnostic is what is it that you think about when there's nothing else to think about, right? When you're just sort of daydreaming, where do your thoughts go? Do they go to the wonders and glory of God? I would think for most of us, they probably don't for me. When I don't have anything to think about, I, I, I would like for that to happen and I pray that it would, but There's all sorts of other things that come in and crowd in our thinking. Maybe it's what life will be like when you, when you get married and you find that, you know, person of your dreams. Maybe it's what will happen when you have children, you're longing for that day, or maybe it's your own career success or attaining that next degree or the time when you uh, are so wealthy, when you make so much money behind those daydreams, if there's a pattern there, there's probably an idol, a God that is animating our lives. 
So we still struggle with it. But idolatry, and, and, and the text is going to continue to go on to that, but, but we're going to move on in, here in our passage. Idolatry wasn't Israel's only, only problem. They tested the Lord. They were not satisfied with God's provision for them. They, did, they tested him by not trusting his goodness towards them. And the question for us is, do we believe that God is good Many of us believe that he's powerful, that he's mighty, that he's merciful even. Um, but we might struggle to believe that he is good. And he is good, right? And as a result of their testing, they then begin to grumble. The Israel then begins to grumble about their state in the wilderness. Which is what happens when we doubt God's goodness. We start to grumble. Now, it's, it's pretty ironic. They're, they're grum- I have, they say several things, but one thing they say just has to be pointed out because it's pretty funny. They say to Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt that we could have just stayed there and die? Why did you bring us out to the wilderness, to the desert, to die here? Now, what's funny about that is what is the one thing you know about Egypt, ancient Egypt? If I ask a third grader, tell me something about ancient Egypt. What are they going to say? Pyramids, right? Which were really just huge graves for the dead people. That's what they were. And so Israel's saying, look, we were in, the, in all of human history, we were in the best place to get buried. <laughs> and you brought us out here to get buried in the desert. They were grumbling. Now, you would think that as a result of all that God had done prior, all of those miracles... That God would not bring them to the desert just to sort of toy with them. Ha ha, I got you out of that slave work and now you're in a worse predicament than before. Gotcha. That's, that's, not, that's not the way God operates. But that's what they were, they were believing about God. Instead, God is good. And Paul is saying, look, like you, the Israelites experienced God's miraculous Salvation. They witnessed God do amazing things, and yet they still grumbled. They still engaged in idolatry. They were disobedient. And Paul is saying, don't let that happen to you. It's a sobering reminder and warning. So Paul is saying here in our our passage, yes, you can eat food sacrificed to idols. That's fine. But it's not wise to eat in, in these temples where this food is being sold. That's the point that he's moving towards. And, and, and his larger point is just because you have the right to do something, it doesn't mean it's a good thing to do it, right? And just the previous chapter, chapter 9, Paul talked about how he had a right to get paid by Corinth, but he was letting go of that right for the, advance, for the sake of the gospel. And he's sort of implying the same thing here. Just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that you should... That you should um, Embrace that right or take it. You know, fr- freedom is not a license. It's a, it's a responsibility. Do you know what the greatest threat to freedom is? Freedom. Christians are free, right? But we're also slaves to Christ. And our ensla- here's, here's the irony. Our enslavement to Christ actually makes us free. Remember the enslavement that we talked about Israel being under Abad just kept showing up. They were clearly enslaved. 
Now, as you, as you read that, you think, you may be thinking, okay, so I get it. The book of Exodus is about the move from, from slavery to freedom. But that's actually not what the book of Exodus is about. Because when, when Moses is at the burning bush and he asks, he says, what should I tell Pharaoh? Why should Pharaoh let Israel go? God says, tell, tell Pharaoh that my people must go so that they can abode me. Right? So the move in the book of Exodus is from bad enslavement to good enslavement under a loving heavenly father. That's the path of the book of Exodus. And that's not how our culture thinks. In our own day, the goal is to get out from under anyone else's authority and kind of to do our own thing. And you see, it pops up all over the place. I, I, I can't even think of a specific movie. I can only think of like 30 where um, the girl who um, she loves this, this person um, and all of the authorities in her life, her society, her parents say you cannot be with that person. And yet she somehow over the course of the movie gets herself out from under the thumb of her parent and her society's authority so that she can freely follow uh, her Prince Charming and live happily ever after. Right? There's that story. There's also the story of the Don Juan character who wants to avoid, he doesn't want to be tied down by any one relationship. So he just sort of plays the field in an effort to, um, to be free. Right? Now the irony there is that both the girl and the guy are still enslaved um, in a sense. They're enslaved to their own passions and their own desires. We inevitably will serve something, right? Bob Dylan was right. You got to serve somebody or something. And the Christian faith says, serve God and you will become free. You will become free to be who you were created to be. Now, how does that work? Well, God's covenantal, God is a covenantal God, and he is at the core a loving father. And yes, he asks that we serve him. But that's what we need. It's for our good. He, he certainly doesn't need us, right, to be on his team in order to accomplish kind of his purposes. He can do that without us. But he lovingly invites us to serve him. And Paul, by appealing to the Old Testament, is pointing out God's covenantal nature, that God is love and he loves you. And, you know, idolatry is really a weird form of self-love. Because, like I said, an idol is a, is a God that's just like us. It's a God made in our image. There was a Greek, an ancient philosopher, a Greek philosopher named Thales, who um, he didn't believe in the gods. And here's why. He said, you know, if I go up to the north, he's in Greece, ancient Greece. If I go up to the north, to like Scandinavia, all the gods there, they have blue eyes and they're blonde hair and they have fair skin. If I go to the south, all the gods there are dark skin. They have dark eyes, brown hair, brown eyes. The gods look just like the people that, that created them. Wherever, whatever culture you go to, the god looks just like the people. He said, so I don't believe in, in those gods. And that's what, that's what idols are. And idolatry is, is us doing what we would do anyway, but kind of giving it that stamp, that spiritual stamp of approval on it, making us feel as though we're worshiping something transcendent. But God is not like us. There's not a scratch his back, he scratches your back arrangement. We're made in his image, not him in ours. And there's a huge difference there. 
So I'm going to say it again. God loves you, but it's not this vague, kind of mushy, God loves you, he loves puppies, and he loves petunias. It's a very deeply personal, deeply specific, concrete, and crunchy covenantal love that was manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul's warning to Corinth applies to us today. Even though we don't see people bowing in worship, idolatry is still an issue for us and we have idols of the heart. And worshiping these idols make us like them. There's this biblical principle that you become like the things that you worship. I grew up kind of... 1980s, started playing Little League and doing all that sort sort of stuff. And um, at the same time, Michael Jordan was obviously a, a big deal in the mid to late 80s. And when I would go to my Little League games at the Y, you'd see every little fifth grader that was driving the lane, going in for the layup. Do you know what they were doing with their mouth? They had their tongue sticking out, right? Because we all wanted to be like Mike. Naturally, they were just sort of becoming like the things that they worship or idolize. You see, I, I love every year the Little League World Series happens, you know, in August. And you watch these little kids, 10-year-olds. I don't even know how old they are, but they're little. And they look just like the major leagues. They get in the batter's box and they have all their little rituals. And they've, they're, they're, they're becoming like the people that they worship and watch. And that's the nature of idolatry. Now, Psalm 78, uh, the psalmist tells us, that idols, um, they've got ears, but they can't hear. They're just wooden. They've got eyes, but they can't see. They've got hands, but they can't feel. Noses, but they can't smell. They've got all of these parts, but they don't work. And then it says, those who worship them become like them. Right? You worship a dead thing, and you know where, where it's going to take you? To death. But you worship the living God, and you will, you will find life. You will become like him in that you will live eternally. The author of Hebrews says that if you want to be certain of your salvation, endure till the end. And that's really what Paul's warning is. He says, say, look, he says look, you guys have heard my message. I've preached it. You've experienced life in the church. Don't veer from that path. Don't, don't veer from where you are. It's a warning, right? That you can get easily get entangled up into other things and fall away. Fall from the community of believers. And the author of Hebrews says, if you want to be sure of your salvation, endure till the end. And if, if that worries you, if that kind of puts in your heart this, oh my gosh, am I saved? Am I not saved? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's my, t- my tendency would be to kind of fret over that. If you're worried about that, you're probably okay. Um, if you're not worried about it, then you probably should be worried about it a little bit. But in, see, in the gospel of Mark, there's all kinds of people that come up to Mark and um, he, he interacts with them. One of the most memorable interactions is with the rich young ruler who the text says runs up to Jesus because he's excited. Why? Well, because he's got this long list of accomplishments. And he's, he, 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 as soon as, before Jesus even speaks, he says, look, Lord, I've done all these things. And so 
if you just look at it on paper, the rich young ruler was the most qualified person to approach Jesus in the entire gospel of Mark. And you know what happens? He leaves disappointed. He rejects Jesus's healing touch primarily because he doesn't think he needs it. And then on the other hand, you've got all these broken, marginalized sinners that sort of boldly but desperately come up to Jesus and he provides his healing touch. If you want to endure till the end, cling to Jesus. I opened with an example from the world of football, and I'm going to close with one too. It's kind of funny because I'm not this huge football fan. I've just, all the, for whatever reason this week, all these football images were popping into my mind. Um, several years ago, it was like three years ago, Tim Tebow was a rookie with the Denver Broncos. And, well, first of all, he had a great college um, experience, and he was a very good college football player and led Florida Gators to all sorts of accolades. But the big question was, how would his, he, he didn't have that great of a, he, his game was good in college, but would it translate to the NFL? That was the big question. And most people said, it's not going to translate. Well, what happened was he got on the Denver Broncos and I don't even remember why. I just started watching like towards the end of the season. He, he would get in the game and he wasn't playing very well at all. Throwing these floppy passes and they were, their offense was just barely inching along. And yet they started winning. And they won week after week after week. They won. And everybody just started scratching their heads saying, how are they winning? Because Tim Tebow's not that good. But they're, they're still winning. People were saying, well, he's a winner. That's why. There were all sorts of you know, speculations as to why he was winning. But I, I jumped on that Broncos bandwagon. I was excited to see how this, this miracle was taking place. I think the Christian life is a little bit like Tim Tebow playing in the NFL. (laughs) You know, you, you've got, you've got neon Dion, he's pick six, he's running down, he's doing his little dance on the sideline as he's approaching the end zone. And as we read that text about enduring till the end, it's sort of easy to think, oh man, that means I got to be like neon Dion. I got, I got to, I got to walk with a swagger in my faith. I've got to really, you know, do all these spiritual things and be real kind of the people around me say, wow, they're, they're the, they're, they're the greatest. In reality, the Christian life looks more like a struggle, right? You look at, it looks more like Tim Tebow playing football. (laughs) I mean, you look at it and you're like, how, how is this happening? And yet the spirit slowly, but persistently carries the Christian along. That's the Christian life. And it's those that are, have their arms tightly around the spirit's work, just sort of being drugged by Jesus and the spirit. It's those that will endure till the end. God is gracious. And this meal that we're about to participate, partake in is a reminder of that. There's a hymn that says the only fitness he requireth is that we know our need of him. And, and, and that's true. So let's, let's pray and we'll partake of this meal. Father, we are grateful that you don't require much of us because of your greatness and goodness that Jesus is fully sufficient. We ask that you would do a work on us again. We want to be changed. And we know that even with the portions of the service that remain, there is, there is much opportunity for your spirit to work. And we pray that you would 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.